titled this series through Genesis, The God of Plan and Promise. Part of what I wanted to convey in that by using the word plan is that everything God does in Genesis is deliberate, right? It reveals a design not only for the beginning of this creation, but also for its ending. And part of the way that God does that is by establishing patterns. There are patterns established all throughout the book of Genesis that will eventually be revealed as the basis for all biblical truth, right? All of that is found in Genesis, that God creates out of nothing. That will become a pattern that's important throughout the rest of Scripture. The idea of seed becomes a pattern in Genesis. Substitutionary atonement becomes a pattern that the faithful in the world are those who walk with God, who don't seek a home here, who sojourn here. That becomes a pattern in Genesis. Covenant becomes a pattern. And the fact that God saves through judgment becomes a pattern also. And I mentioned it briefly last week, but did you realize every time God saves, something dies? Every time God saves, something dies. For something to be saved, something else is judged. And I think that's important because it speaks, among other things, to how central God is in all of creation, every aspect of it. Judgment and salvation both come from God's hand. He's the reason for both of those things. And I believe the ultimate purpose of the ark in the story of the Bible is to establish one thing. Our salvation comes through the judgment of Jesus Christ on our behalf. I think that is the point of the story of the ark in the scope of Scripture. Let's pray and then we'll get started here. Father, I thank you so much, Lord, for your word, for its revelation of your Son, our Savior. I praise you for his obedience, for his sufficiency. And Lord, tonight I pray that you would reveal him to us in this text. Father, keep me centered. Help me speak what you would have me and nothing else. And please help everyone here listen and understand and believe. Father, we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me read the first verse of chapter 7. He says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Salvation from God's judgment comes to those who believe his word. Noah had faith because God had given him grace. That's how the story of Noah started after his birth was revealed earlier in chapter 5. God's grace is what made him righteous in his generation. This is the generation that followed in the way of Cain. These are people that gained an advantage over each other through violence until the whole earth was filled with it, filled with violence. And God would not allow such a world to continue. And it's staggering to think about. We don't know how many people existed in the world at the time, at that time, but they were all the descendants of both Cain and Seth. And they are all about to die. No exceptions other than what we read here. Faith is rare in this world, beloved. It's rare. Let's look at verses 2 and 3. He says, Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive 
on the face of the earth. So whatever is about to come, it's going to be absolute chaos, right? It's very interesting here. Being a, just think about this little detail. Being a bird with the ability to fly will not spare you when this judgment comes. That's how complete and total it's going to be. Four and five. For in seven days, I will send rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. So seven days before God unleashes his judgment, uh, he places Noah and his family and the animals he means to save on the ark, right? Six through 10. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. So sometime between the age of 500 and 600, Noah finishes the ark and then God kept his word. The flood came upon the earth. Look at 11 through 16. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, this is literal. This happened, and it happened on that day. That's when it began. On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. Both of those things happened. And rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights, On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast, according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. There's a lot we could say here. The fact that, for one thing, the fact that 40 40 emerges here as a pattern for judgment, as it will be throughout Scripture. The flood goes on for 40 days and 40 nights, or at least the initial rain does. Remember Israel, 40 years in the wilderness. Remember Jesus, he goes through 40 days and 40 nights to be tempted we could talk about the fact that God's judgment was absolutely devastating, right? Let's, again, it's, I know that we don't mean anything by it when we do it, but we've, we've kind of sanitized this story into a mere children's tale. That's why we decorate nurseries with it. And again, I don't want to insult that. I don't want you to be offended if you had Noah's Ark sheets for your baby. I think we did. I don't know. And I really mean that. I don't, I don't want you to be offended. I just... We need to grasp what's happening here. This isn't theoretical. This isn't a metaphor. This happened. And it was absolutely catastrophic. I mean, that, that's such a weak word for what happened here. Um, all the fountains of the great deep burst open. And the windows of heaven were opened. Water from above and from below. Could you imagine how terrifying... That would have been. You remember in Genesis 1, 6 through 10 that God created the expanse of heaven to separate the waters, right? And God gathered the water under the heavens into one place so that the dry land could appear. 
that safe space that made the earth inhabitable for human beings, it's removed. There is no refuge. There is nowhere to go. You'll find you couldn't even go up to the top of a mountain here. It's not going to save you. There is nothing that any individual could have possibly done to avoid death. Right? The judgment of God here is catastrophic, complete, and if we believe Him and who He is, we know deep down inside it was completely justified. This isn't unfair. Right? It's, it's, this is a heavy text. Judgment is a heavy thing. There was nowhere to go for 40 days and 40 nights straight. On Thursday, June 14, 1990, the lives of 26 people were lost in a relatively brief, relatively brief flash flood near Shadyside, right? When the Ouija and Pipe Creeks overflowed. Five and a half inches of rain fell with three to four inches in an hour. And that was enough. That fell into the valleys and then saturated the soil along those two creeks. The result was devastating. I read about this. Many of you probably experienced this. You, most of you probably lived here, here in Moundsville or Glendale or whatever when that happened. I, I, re- I remember the news for when I was little, but it was, it was far away. I was in Columbus. I didn't really grasp what it was or in, in Dresden, I guess. Nearly all of the water ran off the slopes into the creeks. I, growing up, I always thought it was the Ohio River that flooded. I didn't realize until I came here that it wasn't the river overflowing. It was coming down off of these, um, falling down from the valleys, saturated the soil along those two creeks. Nearly all the water ran off the slopes into the creeks and created a wall of water over six feet high, right, that moved down the creeks and just washed out everything. About 80 homes were destroyed with another 250 damaged 26 bodies were found downstream in the Ohio River. That's, that is an enormous amount of, of people that lost their lives. 26 people because of some water coming down off of these valleys and these creeks overflowing. Creeks, right? 26 bodies found downstream in the Ohio River. Three to four inches of rain in one hour onto some creeks caused that. Beloved, can we imagine... Can we even imagine what the opening of the heavens and the bursting forth of the earth would have done to all humanity? Because that's what we're talking about here. Can you imagine the terror just coming out of nowhere? It may not have ever rained until this moment. What would you have done? I mean, how how could you, you... These are families... Let's not, again, let's not sanitize or apologize for the word of God. Just everybody, everybody. God made sure of it. God made sure that everything was swept away. The whole earth that was, was totally obliterated. And so was everything on it. God also keeps his promise of judgment when he makes it. It was God who shut the door to the ark. It was God who sent the water. If we learn anything out of this story, let it be that God is not some, I hope this isn't all we learn from it, but if we only take a few things from it, God is not a sentimental pushover. He is ablaze in holiness. And when he pours out his judgment, there is no escape. There is no escape unless 
he provides one. Look at verse 17. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters, I mean, think about that. How high, right? The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. All of it. Bird, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. How intent is this author on making his point here? Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. The flood was a complete reversal of Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, God takes what is formless and void, what is uninhabitable, and he makes it into a cosmos, right? With, with everything necessary for us to survive in the flood, God destroys the, con- the, the cosmos so that it reverts back to the uninhabitable chaos. It was uninhabitable chaos that it was before. In 6.5, if you remember, God saw the wickedness of the earth just as he saw back in 110 and 131 that the creation was good originally. This was a violent and total destruction of life on the earth. God was not going to work with what was there. He obliterated the status quo. The way this flood was unleashed on the earth emphasizes complete destruction. That's why it's written the way that it is. Not just because everything, including the mountains, was covered with water, but because very powerful forces were brought to bear on the earth here. The Hebrew verb in verse 11 for burst forth means the violent splitting apart of something. So imagine how this would have completely altered the surface of the earth. The world that is now is not like the one that was before the flood. And if it's bursting open and the windows of heaven are open, what are we talking? Earthquakes? Tsunamis? I mean, what what does this entail here? That may have resulted from it. Again, like the, the windows of heaven are also open. I mean, it's just... And in verse, the result in verse 22 is the death of everything that has the breath of life in it, except those who are on the ark. This was a global catastrophe. I, I, when we lived in Newark still, I would, I, would, I would meet my nephew, my nephew by marriage, um, at a restaurant. He, he's a, a, a devout atheist. A, atheism is his religion. And, and we would talk, and these, these are, the, he'd say, the flood is a geological impossibility. And I would tell him the only thing I could tell him, it doesn't matter. God is above your geology. It, it, it doesn't matter what arguments you can make here. Either we believe this or we throw all of it in the camp. You, you don't get to cherry pick, well, I think this part of the Bible. And, and no, you, you, no you, you either you believe God or you don't believe him. Just every living thing, all flesh in 613 and 17, as well as here in verse 21, God did exactly what he said he was going to do. Uh, every living thing God made in 7-4 and 
verses 22 and 23. I, I, I don't know how many of you have seen it, so I won't belabor the comparison. But I do think, like, in our culture, you see, mankind knows this happened. Deep down inside, all people believe this happened. They just hate that this happened. So you, you see it in, uh, I don't, again, I don't know how many of you have seen this, but uh, like the, the Avengers, the, the new uh, group of Marvel movies, they're great cinema, great cinema. But Thanos, this guy that gets this glove and snaps and kill, wipes out half of all life in the universe, that, that's Hollywood's picture of God, this arbitrary, despot, all-powerful ruler that can only be defeated if, if everybody bands together and fights him. That, that's, that's because deep down inside, all mankind knows this is true, and the best we can do to avoid the coming judgment is make these stories where we win because we know we're not going to win. We know this day is coming again, and we know it'll be worse than it was here. Right? So at some point in our lives, as we live these lives where, where we just do whatever we want to do and think whatever we want to think and go on about our business, this God lives, he exists, and he's holy, and he hates violence, and he hates sin, and we don't talk about it anymore. The length of the flood also speaks to its total destruction. It lasted almost an entire year. Right? It started on the 17th day of the second month when Noah was 600 years old. Right? How, how do you navigate a flood at age 600? Right? Verse 11. And the waters were dried up on the first day of the first month when Noah was 601 years old. In 8.13, as we'll read, I think, uh, here in just a little bit. Look at, look at 1 through 5 of chapter 8. It's not all doom and gloom tonight, okay? But the light doesn't shine until you're in the dark, right? Chapter 8, 1. But God remembered Noah. And all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. In the midst of this total and cataclysmic judgment from God, happening at the exact same time, is preservation. Noah brought two kinds of every kind of bird, animals, and creeping things of the ground, which, again, recalls Genesis 1:21, verses 24 and 25. They were to be male and female, so that after the flood they can multiply on the earth again, which, again, is simply the original creation mandate. God uses a wind, which does, I think, recall Genesis 1-2, where the Spirit is hovering over the face of the waters. He does that to cause the waters to recede from the earth in order for the dry land to reappear again. And then, of course, there's the salvation of Noah and his family. Since God had made a covenant with him back in 618, causes a wind to blow over the earth to subside the waters. He closes the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven. This all happens over the course of 150 days. And on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat, which would be the extreme eastern part of modern-day Turkey is more or less where this 
would be the waters continue to abate until the 10th month. And in that month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains could be seen again. So the same God who destroys now heals and recreates, right? He destroys with water. He heals with wind. Both are elements of his creation. Right? So there didn't have to be any magic here. No, um, you know, not something that didn't exist, but something he had made is what he uses. Um, but God did not abandon his creation, even though it was overrun by corruption and violence. When that is the case, however, that the creation is overrun with corruption and violence, the one who is sovereign, who has all the power and holds all the cards, wipes it out to begin again. But the preservation through the flood reveals more of the character of God. It's just, it's hard to see it because the backdrop here is total cataclysmic judgment. Tony's been teaching us this new song the last last couple times he was here. We did a song that speaks to this. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. This is what's coming out in this story. When Peter will recall Noah and the flood in 1 Peter 3, he says that just as Noah and his family passed through death into salvation by being brought safely through water, so believers pass through death into salvation represented by the waters of baptism. So not just an external cleansing, but an internal transformation that even, Peter will say, affects the conscience. But look at, look at 6 through 14. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth a dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, again, the author is trying to convey that this is literal. This happened, right? On the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. That was the end of verse 14. So the earth has been restored. We could say in some sense it's been maybe even recreated to a degree, given how complete the destruction of the flood was. Noah uses a raven and a dove to test his environment to see if there was land. And then, as we said, a year after the floods came, the water has dried up from the earth. Verse 15. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. The the order is being restored, right? The, The animals now, God has preserved them so that they can, male and female, reproduce and be fruitful and multiply. That was the order before. The animals came first, right? All the language here is reminiscent of that original mandate to Adam, 
what we know now, if you remember it all from last week, from 618, is that this is covenantal language. This is God establishing, as he said, his covenant with Noah. The mandate of it continues after the flood. The same expectations of the creation remain, right? Look at 18 and 19 finally tonight. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. In chapter 7 and 8 now, God kept two promises, right? His promise to destroy every living thing by flooding the earth, except Noah and his family and the animals of every kind he selected, and his promise to save Noah and his family and those animals through all of it. The flood subsides, land reemerges, the same creation for a new earth, so to speak, begins for the animals, and as we'll see next week, God willing, we'll do so again for Noah. Now, why does God save through cataclysmic judgment? I mean, most of us, look, most of us in this room know this story. We've known it our whole lives. We, those of us who never had that crisis moment in our lives where we didn't grow up in church, we didn't grow up in Sunday school, I think it would... It would help us, number one, to understand what it would be like to hear these stories without that knowledge. In other words, my kids, for example, my kids have not been raised in a home where they don't know about these things. They're raised to believe that these things are true, right? Right, wrong, or indifferent, that's, that's what happens. We, in, in our home, we don't leave it as an option that maybe God is there, maybe he isn't, right? So one reality that does come from that, though, is that... When you look back, as you get older and you, you begin to run into things in life that make you question all these things you believe, it's a different thing for us because we never had to face, well, what if this is all a joke? What, I mean, so in other words, many of us, most of us in this room, just grow up believing these things and accepting them as true when in reality these are wild things to believe. Again, I'm not saying because they're dumb or they're silly, but we, why is it this way? God did this. Do we think like they were all 70-year-old murderers when this happened? They weren't. Right? They weren't. This is awful. Awful. I'm not saying God is awful. You know that's not what I mean. But I mean, you, you understand horrible. Why, why is it like this? Right? Why is it like this? I want to go after an answer, okay? I, I want you to go back to, and again, part of it is us trying to make sense of what we see, but I do believe this is true, all right? Go, go back to 8.1. Look at this line. God remembered Noah. It doesn't mean that God had forgotten him at some point. It means precisely that he hadn't. The story of the flood is, at its foundation, a story about God's salvation in the midst of God's judgment. Salvation is a pointless thing to talk about unless there's judgment. 8-1 means that the fury of God's judgment 
you think about how cataclysmic and total and awful it was. 8-1 means that for all the fury of God's judgment, it did not result in God forgetting the righteous. Noah was not swept away along with the wicked. God is not sloppy in his wrath, nor is he unhinged or out of control. Our God does not have a bad temper or a short fuse. This is not a human being getting mad, throwing stuff around, and losing it. That is not what we are reading here. We think of wrath and judgment only in terms of losing control. Beloved, that is not happening here. There is no loss of control. There, after this happened, God didn't go, oh, what have I done? No, every drop of rain from the earth and from the heavens was ordained and ordered by a sovereign, almighty, perfect God. Not one Adam during the flood was out of his control or the result of a short fuse. This is divine wrath. It is not a very powerful person losing their temper. Consider the sovereign power of Almighty God. We have to, when we look at the flood, while God is pouring out this catastrophic global judgment with one hand, so to speak, He is guiding the ark over every wave and swell and rush of wind with the other. Right? The whole time. Both are happening at the same time. There was a covenant made back in 618. And God doesn't forget his covenants. God's just and awful wrath, in other words, because, look, there's no human argument against it. I know we feel justified saying, well, that wasn't really fair. God forbid God ever decides to be fair. Because everybody's going to hell if God decides to be fair. So can we take that argument and set it over here, it's not valid if God is in charge of everything. What are we going to say? Right, let's talk about it. What are we going to say? You can't do that. Okay, fight him. Fight him. Right, it's, it's foolishness. You say, well, it doesn't. I know it doesn't make sense to the mind. It doesn't make sense. What are we going to do? If he doesn't save, what are we going to do? We like to think that we're so big and so important and, you know, I'm not going to take this line down. And when I stand before God, I'm going to, yo, you're going to say nothing. You're going to beg is what you're going to do. Right? Just. God's just and awful wrath. It's, it's, it's just. It is awful. It doesn't boil up over his mercy and love and grace. Right? That's where the refuge is tonight. Consider, if that's true, I want you to consider how safe your soul is tonight. You struggling saint like me of little faith. Right? The just and awful wrath, which I never quit deserving, if you want to get technical, will never boil up over his mercy and his love and his grace. Do you know what that means? When the waves of our iniquity and failures rise, the preserving hand of God rises higher. The only thing every single person in this room 
from the youngest of us to the oldest deserves from God is damnation. We are sinners all. The verdict has been handed down. We are guilty. Guilty. We're conceived with the corruption and rebellion of these days in our DNA. We don't even have a choice in the matter. So, again, you start arguing that God is only just and good if he's fair according to human standards. You're going to get to page 9 of the Bible and you're in trouble. We are conceived with the corruption and rebellion of these days in our DNA. And we don't have to live very long to realize that the sin crouching at the door, meaning to rule over us, has been victorious in his schemes. Right? Victorious. And the wages of our sin is death. So the windows of heaven should open up and rain down with fire on you and I tonight. The fountains of the deep should burst and cover us with judgment. The rocks should fall on us and crush us. God should bring his hammer down on every single one of us because not only have we committed innumerable sins, not only are we filled with iniquity on the commission side, on the omission side, we don't love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We don't give him the worship he deserves. We don't live the lives worthy of what he is worthy of. And no matter how hard we try, Every single day we continue to fall short of the mark. There isn't enough good to be done in the universe for every person that exists that will be enough good to just straight out earn favor from this God. It can't be done. Do we think we just treat him like such a bum, such a pushover? Do we think that we have ever done well enough or will ever become good enough that in actuality we don't deserve God's wrath anymore? I'm a pastor. I'm a preacher. And I deserve God's wrath as I stand here tonight. It's a miracle. I'm allowed to do this and that lightning doesn't cut through the ceiling and burn me out where I stand. I absolutely deserve it. We deserved it the day we got saved. We'll deserve it on the day we die. If we're just talking about the math, you understand that, right? We're just talking about what of my deeds and thoughts and actually merited me before God. What have they actually earned? I guarantee you there's not enough good to cover the bad. Because again, it, well, taking, letting your wife take a bite of a fruit caused all of this. So when you wonder how holy is God, I don't know, but I know he's holy enough that that is just. That one act, one, of you didn't do what I said, you didn't do the one thing I said, means the curse and condemnation forever. And so our sins and our failures, look, I know we're doing good at times and we desire to do good and honor the Lord with our lives. I'm not denying any of that. I'm saying if, you, if, if, if we're talking about while that's happening, you know, this, this steady, which again, I don't like to track it. Don't like, I don't think that's what sanctification is biblically, but we could, for the sake of argument, say, even though there's some progress in my life, there's also at the same time still happening concurrent with that sins and failures all the time. So 
no matter how much good I might be doing, the sins and the failures just stack up and stack up and stack up and stack up. Right? And the earth that existed since the flood, it's not less wicked, beloved. We haven't... We, there are billions more of us now. Imagine the cry from the earth to God now. Forget for a minute about the blasphemy of Molech, where they would offer up their children to this God and and burn them alive. Forget that. You know what we do now? We butcher them by the millions before they're even born. What do you think that sounds like to God who hates violence? That we just do it in mass, in mass. What? Imagine the patience of God just hearing it, crying out all the time. Look at how capable we are of violence now. There were no missiles. There were no guns. There were no, I mean, and this, God looked at this violence and said, that's enough. What does it sound like now? Look at what people throughout the world do to one another. My goodness. We aren't, we aren't just talking clubs and rocks anymore. We're talking about nuclear holocaust and chemical warfare and guided missiles and drone strikes and shootings and stabbings and physical abuse, sexual abuse, just the sex trade and sex. I mean, just, just my goodness. God did not send the flood on. Here's the thing. Here's the staggering thing. God did not send the flood on the earth as a means of purifying humanity of evil. Because if that was the case, Noah and his family would have died too. Because it's not, we're gonna, it's not gonna take long for this family to show it's also cursed. Right? We didn't eradicate the curse with water. The ark didn't save mankind. It preserved a family so that the same creation that rebelled against God once could continue to do so. And so that God could keep his promise to bring the seed of the woman into the world. He hasn't been born yet. I think the world that existed prior to Genesis 9 was going to eradicate itself if left to itself. So God intervened. So does not ending it entirely that's because that's the thing here. Why does it not get ended entirely? Does that make God a glutton for punishment? Again, it's just going to start again. So did God not see that? Did he not know that? No, he knew it. He's a God of grace. This is the drum that Genesis is beating on every page. That this God is a God of grace. And God's purpose for creating a world where sin would increase is given to us in Romans 9 if we're willing to listen. Listen to this text. I, I, I grew up as the son of a pastor. I grew up in church all my life. I didn't know these verses were in the Bible until I was 19 years old. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, you catch that? What if God, Paul is the master, so he's arguing, he's answering objections in Romans 9. Um, Paul is, is addressing the fact that God said the Jews would be his people and the majority of them are going to hell. 
because they're rejecting Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Does that mean God went back on his word or doesn't keep his promises? That's the argument Paul is addressing, and he comes to this. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Yes. What if that? And you could say, as people have tried to mess with this text, well, that's talking about nations. What nations are filled with? People. What difference does it make? Right? What if God's word is true? What if God ordains that sin continue and increase so that when he finally does act decisively to save sinners, it makes his grace shine all the brighter? What if that? So what what biblical Christianity is going to do is, is push and push and push all of our self reasoning and actualization and realization is going to continue to push us, which is why we mess with the Bible all the time. It's going to push us into a corner where the only option we have is to embrace this God as he's revealed himself to be or make him up and then worship the image. Because that's what's happening in Romans. There's an answer. I believe the full witness of scripture reveals that God created the world to showcase and be glorified for his boundless Grace. I believe that's the purpose for every single molecule that exists. And to do that, to showcase and be glorified for boundless grace, sin and rebellion have to be out of control. Because if they're not, grace doesn't look that great. Beloved, you say, well, well, God would, does that make God the author of evil? God would never do that, beloved. Why does Paul say God gave the law in Romans 5.20? Let's just talk about the law. So that transgression would increase. So there you go. God would never do something to cause sin to increase. Have you read the Bible? Yes, he would. Again, do we understand how in control God is of this thing? Right? And when you start to think about that, so that transgression would increase, why would you do that? Because he's going to save. If, you, if I save somebody, if I save one of my children from a fire, it's a beautiful thing and we celebrate it and we love it and it's a good thing. If I step in between myself, if I step in between a bullet and the leader of ISIS, you're not, you're not going to be celebrating that. You're going to say, you idiot, what were you doing? Right? Because grace, when God saves, God saves sinners, 
God saves people that don't deserve it. That's what we all are. We just don't realize it. We create classes. We look down on people that are worse than us. Who's worse than me? What what does that even mean? What if everything in the Bible serves God's ultimate purpose of being worshipped for His glory and salvation? Which would mean, what if even God's wrath serves the purpose of God's grace? What if judgment is there so that the saved have something specific to praise God for? Right? I mean, have you... We're almost home. Have you ever considered the words of God's prophet Zephaniah? Because this is really staggering against the backdrop of the flood in the storyline of Scripture. Zephaniah, as they call him, he's one of the minor prophets, obscure little three-chapter book. The coming wrath prophesied in the book of Zephaniah, chapter 1, verses 2 through 3, says God will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, man and beast, the birds of the heavens. That sounds familiar. The fish of the sea, that's new. And the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. You and I have... Just nine, not to destroy the earth again with water doesn't mean God isn't going to destroy the earth again at all. What we come to find out in the rest of Scripture is that God will destroy the earth again. The next time it will be by fire, right? The flood will end up looking like nothing compared to God's full and final destruction. Again, even the fish of the sea will die in this judgment. They didn't die in the water, right? They will die next time. For three chapters in Zephaniah, God outlines his coming judgment on the world, and then he summarizes it all in chapter 3, verse 8. Let me read it to you. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for that's the next word in Zephaniah's text for so because in other words here's why God is going to pour out his wrath then are you ready listen to this Zephaniah 3 verse 9 this is why God is going to consume in the fire of his jealousy all the earth for at that time when I do that I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst the people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Again, you have to read that as New Covenant Christians. That's talking to you. That's talking to all those that are Abraham's seed now. 
The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Why will God consume the earth in the fire of his jealousy? So that the ones not consumed by that wrath will know how great his mercy is by showing them in his wrath what he's saving them from. He will pour out his wrath and consume his enemies so that his sons and daughters will come running to his feet in joy and thanksgiving and praise when they see it. We don't even know really what we're praising God for in our salvation quite yet. It is the fury of God's wrath that will show just how mighty he really is to save in 317. Right? One day that will all, all our songs will have a context. Oh, you saved me from that. When all the raging subsided and Noah stood on the deck of his ship, when he and his family left the ark and settled on dry ground again, what do you think they knew about the Lord in those moments? As they looked out across all that and realized they were the only ones left. God had saved them from all his own fury. God's salvation, beloved, is salvation from God's wrath. The ark did not crush the serpent's head. It didn't overcome the curse. It didn't create a pure humanity that will enjoy God's rest forever, but it did show us how God is going to accomplish all of that. And he did it right in the very midst of his judgment because that's how he always does it started in the beginning, the pattern. Animals died for Adam and Eve to be covered. Everything died for Noah to understand what it meant that God is holy and that God keeps his word. But then one day, one day, the responsibility of keeping God's mandate fell on this little newborn baby in Bethlehem. The responsibility of keeping our side of the covenant fell on one man. And for 33 years, he did what Adam could not do. He did what Cain could not do. He did what Noah won't be able to do. What Abraham and Moses and David won't do, he obeyed. He never sinned. And he did it as a substitute for us. And if you remember the literal words surrounding Calvary, what did the earth do? It burst open and it poured over judgment on him on a hill outside of Jerusalem. The sky grew dark that day too, didn't it? Cataclysmic judgment. The windows of heaven opened up and poured out God's wrath on him 
instead of you and me. And in the midst of God's judgment being poured out on His Son for our sin, in the midst of that judgment, you and I are saved forever. As the cup of God's wrath was emptied on His Son, while that storm raged and reeled and rocked, you and I rested safe in His bosom, in Him. One day, when God's ultimate wrath is finally poured out and we're saved from it, We'll put our hands on the holes in His. We'll feel the hole in His side. And God's redeemed will know what they have been saved from. We're only praising Him now in the abstract. Because the wrath we deserve was poured out on His Son thousands of years ago. We've never even seen it. But we will. Everybody will. Even those that pierced Him. And the worship of God will be the greater for it for all eternity. Again, it's all abstract theology to us. How else can we talk about it? We, we, we don't even really grasp what God has saved us from, but we will. We will. That's the plan. Beloved, judgment exists to magnify grace. The flood existed ultimately for the sake of the ark so that those sojourning through the wind and the waves without a home in this world can look into the midst of primeval chaos and remember the word of our Lord who says, I will keep my covenant, I will remember my promise, I will save, I will accomplish my purpose. Refuge from God's wrath can be found only in God's vessel of salvation. In Genesis 7 and 8, it was an ark. In the fullness of God's plan for all mankind, it is a person. Our salvation comes through the judgment of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Have you been forgiven of your sins? Have you repented of your rebellion against this God? Have you been reconciled to Him? What is it to have faith in Jesus? It is to be placed in Him like an ark. It is to watch God then shut the door on the just accusations of His own wrath against us. Right? God shuts the door on all of what the law demands. He just shuts the door and keeps you safe. It's God who justifies. To be in Christ is to be declared safe forever because the death of Jesus is paid for my amnesty. Kiss the Son. Come into Christ. Be saved. Live. And one day, where there should have been wrath, we are literally going to hear the voice of God Himself rejoicing over us with gladness, quieting us by His love, exulting over us with loud singing. What do you think it sounds like when God sings? All because God brought salvation for us through the judgment that fell on His Son. This is our God. I pray that we know Him. I pray that we know Him. Tony's going to come, and actually I'm just going to have him play uh, quietly. His voice is probably about gone from singing, but not feeling well, but let's, uh, let me pray here. I'll be down front if any of you need to come and pray for any reason while he plays quietly. And so would you stand and then we'll close. Father, I thank you for the time you've given us tonight. Lord, it is a difficult thing for us to try to grasp with what we see in your word, but Lord, where else can we go to find the truth? What else can we do? You are our refuge. You are our refuge. And so, Father, I pray that we hope in you 
above all things, for, Lord, you will save. We ask and pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.